for God to give us his spirit and his word. As you guys turn there, a couple of just preliminary remarks. Second Peter uh, was written around 62 to 63 AD, so super early. Uh, Apostle Peter wrote it in Rome, um, probably to believers in Asia Minor who are dealing with a lot of false teaching and a lot of persecution. So he's writing to these uh, believers. And we have the opportunity to hear from Peter literally in his dying days. If you look at it, about midway of chapter 1, look at verse 13. I think you have written, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Peter's going to die soon. And we get a similar glimpse, right, in uh, 2 Timothy. Uh, Paul is about to be poured, off, poured out as a drink offering. Well, here we get to see kind of the probably the last letter that Peter um, ever wrote. These false teachers we're talking, that we're talking about, the, the corruption of their teaching is only surpassed by their corrupt living. We're going to find out that these guys are incredibly corrupt, morally speaking. These people are really corrupt, and their influence is bearing down on the church. And so Peter writes, as he's nearing his death, he writes to exhort the church to live godly lives and to escape the corruption that is bearing on them from these false teachers and other, and other influences, to escape the sinful desire of the world. And such godly lives must be lives of virtue. And that's our main focus this morning. We're going to look at Christian virtue, Christian characteristics should be true of all of us. It's going to be a very, very practical sermon. There's three uh, parts that really make up this passage. We're going to be in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 15. We'll look at the power for Christian virtue. So where do we get that enabling power, the sustaining strength we need to have virtue in our lives. We'll look at the power for it. We'll look at the character of Christian virtue. And then last, we will look at the necessity of Christian virtue, how it's absolutely not optional, that it literally uh, will be necessary evidence for those who will be entering in the kingdom of God. So the power and the character and the necessity of Christian virtues. And if you have your, if you're already there, let's stand together in 2 Peter 1. Beginning reading at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, <clears throat> and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what Peter wished for this church would become true of us. As we hear his final words, God, we would be stirred up to these qualities, that we would be effective and fruitful and not idle, and that we would be those that was said of us, grew and advanced in these qualities to the resounding glory of Christ who gave himself for us. We ask in his name. Amen. Okay. So we're going to look at the first point here, the power for Christian virtue. And the main point of this part is that the power for advancing in Christian virtues comes from God and not ourselves. Look again at verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Granted us power, literally it says, for all things. There, God has not left us uh, with one, one aspect of our lives where we have to be uncertain whether God's power is sufficient to give us uh, the ability to live godly in whatever aspect of our lives. All things, his power supplied to absolutely everything for us to live uh, a godly life. Why is it really important that he begins here before he gives us the list? Why is it important that Peter tells us that the source of our power and our energy will be from God before he tells us the list of virtues? What would we be tempted to do if he just gave us the list? Okay. Yeah. Do it in the vain attempts of our own flesh and our own energy, which is completely vain and completely has no eternal value if it's not infused with the spiritual power that the Spirit soaks through us. So verse 3 comes before verse 5 and 7. We should be really glad of that this morning. He tells us the source of the power for the virtues before he gives us the virtues, and that's going to guard us from becoming proud if we ever see progress in our life. It's going to guard us from becoming proud because we'll know it's from divine power and not from our vain attempts. So the power underneath our virtue is power divine. God's power makes us what we are. We are what we are by the grace of God, to quote Paul. We are what we are by the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less. If you have any progress from this point, from today till this day next year, maybe progress in one maybe area of sin or some other area in your life, if you see progress, it's owing entirely to this undercurrent of grace and power that's underneath, that's underneath you, that our gracious God gives us. Um, 
last night, uh, me and Katie were talking about an uh, illustration (laughs) that would be helpful uh, to think about just how how absurd it is to boast in our own uh, personal sanctification or to boast in our own progress, how how silly it is. Just imagine, uh, how many of you have been on Lake Murray? Most of you, right? Yeah. Imagine if you're going to Lake Murray this afternoon. Let's say you just got a new boat. This isn't just any boat. This isn't a John boat. Let's say it's a Tritune, a Bennington. All right. It's a really nice boat. I don't know how much they are, but they're a lot. Let's say you're on that boat and you're, it's really nice weather, maybe 70 degrees or something. Now let's say that you're out there for like four hours and all you do is you boast in how well the boat floats. This boat is really floating. It's really <laughs> buoyant. Like, it's not sinking at all. This is a great boat. This is a great device to stay on top of water with. It's awesome. And all you talk about is how well it can float. And yet, the entire day, and you're probably annoying all your friends a lot at this point, right? And let's, let's say that's all you talk about, and yet you never draw any attention to the enormous body of water that's lifting the boat off the ground. It's just an assumed reality, right? Of course the water's there. And I think we get that way in our Christian life when we think about our progress in the faith. God's grace and power is literally the ocean of power and the ocean of our source that gives us any ability to even lift a finger in Jesus' name. And so let's not be like the foolish guy out on the boat. Um, so God's power works in us as we behold him uh, in faith and also in knowing um, his promises. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now let's back up some. Uh, let's call to mind what Peter's situation is like, what his audience's situation is like. So he's, he's writing to these believers who are being influenced by these false teachers who are living, what kind of lives do we say? Corrupt, right? Really corrupt lives. <clears throat> Just to get an idea of how corrupt they are, glance at chapter 2. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. That's what these people are like that are bearing down on the church and are trying to uh, influence the church with their, their lifestyle. So what is Peter's instruction on how this church needs to escape this environment and this heavy influence? What would you expect maybe Peter to say? to this church who is in the midst of these corrupt false teachers. Maybe just withdraw from the world, just kind of 
secluded to a, a mountain somewhere and just kind of live like monks, kind of live in a monastery on top of a hill, get away from them, never rub any shoulders against them. Is that you think what Peter will call them to do? No, he doesn't. First, he instructs them to experience God's power through knowing Christ in an ongoing communing and intimate kind of knowledge of Christ to walk near to him as we see it in verse 3. This divine power is experienced how? Look at the second half of verse 3. By what means do we experience divine power? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Right, we need to ask who the him is. And I think the last verse of this letter, if you'll turn there, the very last verse of this letter gives it away. <clears throat> but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. This one that we're knowing in an intimate way is Jesus. So, if you're in the midst of corrupt people, Guys, school starting soon. Going to be around an enormous number of corrupt human beings, right? You guys who, uh, um, at your job perhaps, perhaps in your own home, your neighborhood, walk with Jesus is his first point. Knowing through the knowledge of Christ, we experience God's power. Second, he instructs them to partake in the divine nature by trusting the promises of God. That's in verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very, great, and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's really common, especially among the Greek philosophers, to say that when people are acting like God or they're resembling his traits and his characteristics, they would sometimes describe it as partaking in the divine nature. So that's likely what's going on here. We're being called to be like God himself. And the list he's about to give us is a list that we can see in God himself. So, two things. He tells them to experience God's power through knowing Christ and to partake in the divine nature by trusting God's promises. He doesn't expect them just to pull away and remove, remove themselves from these people. Remember Jesus' prayer in the Gospel of John? Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus expects us to live in the power of God among the corrupt world in which we live. Um, hopefully being as Christ to these people. Alright, well, because God has freely granted us this power and these promises, that's, the, that's our, our first point, right? Our only power for growing in these virtues has to be from God's power himself. The second point I want to look at is the character of these virtues. So what does this look like? So let's look again at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So the first one is virtue. Some translations might have a, a moral excellence. It's a complete moral excellence that in the eyes of the world you're above, above reproach. Y'all remember the very first thing expected of pastors like in Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3? If you were to go to Titus 1 right now, the first qualification 
for someone who wants to be a pastor is that they're above reproach. So the community, the larger social context would look on that man and there wouldn't be glaring, obvious moral issues. There wouldn't be a bunch of elephants in the room saying, don't make him a pastor, right? So there aren't, thank you. There. They would be people of virtue, right? They would be honorable kind of people. That's what he's calling us to advance in right now for all Christians to advance in in virtue, to have an honorable character of choosing the, the right decision regardless of the outcome or regardless if the results will work in our favor or not. Making uh, moral criticisms of Christians shouldn't be just a piece of cake. It shouldn't be glaring, obvious moral issues always going on in the people of God. We're called to virtue and to honor. And because our culture hardly recognizes honor and shame anymore, you guys have noticed that, right? Our culture doesn't recognize honor or shame anymore. This is going to make you an oddball, right? But Paul says he chooses to be a fool for Christ's sake, and I hope you choose the same thing, to be a, a fool for Christ's sake. Just as a fun kind of an illustration of how different our culture has become in, in culture and shame, a lot of you guys will recognize this uh, more than uh, more than others. What might not be a surprise is that, let's compare, say, 1930 to uh, 2015, some different pricing. The average home in 1930 was around $4,000. A new car would have been around $600. Hey, some of you guys have that already, right? $600? Gasoline was <laughs> roughly around $0.10 cents a gallon, and a pound of hamburger meat would have only set you back about $0.12 cents a pound. That would have been a good Saturday. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this might be more surprising to you in the difference. Think of how different the, the um, honor and shame consciousness has changed. Uh, let's go back to the 1950s. By the spring of 1956, rock and roll sensation Elvis Presley is fast becoming a national phenomenon. His first single for the RCA Records, Heartbreak Hotel, is number one on the charts and plans are in the works for his movie debut. Everywhere Presley performs, his sultry looks, swinging hips, and dynamic growing post-war baby boom uh, generation is taking, <clears throat> taking off. Presley has already appeared six times on national television, but it is his appearance on the Milton Berle show on June 5th, 1956, that triggers the first controversy of his career. Presley sings his latest single, Hound Dog, with all the pelvis-shaking intensity that his fans are screaming for. Television critics across the country slam the performance for its appalling lack of musical integrity, for its vulgarity, and even its animalism. Pelvis-shaking is like animalism. <laughs> the Catholic Church takes up the criticism in its weekly organ uh, in a piece headline, Beware Elvis Presley. Concerns about juvenile delinquency and the changing moral values of the young find a new target in this popular singer. So, for any of you guys who go home and get on YouTube and watch this pelvis shaking in the video, Hound Dog, Parental Vision, Parental, what's the word? Yeah, that is advised. 
If it wouldn't scare all of you, I would try to demonstrate what that looks like. <laughs> I want you guys to stay because we have more verses to cover. <laughs> Compare that to our culture today. To our culture today who celebrates Miley Cyrus twerking in a uniform onesie. Oh, a unicorn onesie. Right? Our culture today is very, very different, isn't it? Right? In the 1950s, they were freaking out over Elvis doing some hip movements. And today, they celebrate um, a young woman um, absolutely revealing herself to the entire world. So virtue and honor and integrity will cost you cultural acceptance. That's the, that's the main point. You'll be mocked and you'll be made fun of for valuing them. But nevertheless, growth in virtue is absolutely necessary to being a child of God. So what else are we to add to uh, add to our faith? One is virtue. Next is knowledge. Well, we've already covered knowledge some. Remember, knowing Jesus is how we experience the power of God. And knowing, communing with Jesus, being along with Jesus, being at His feet. We find, uh, we find um, this kind of knowledge not to be just a factual, cognitive kind of knowledge, right? It's not that we read, a, we wake up in the morning at least a uh, read a list of facts about the the historical nature of Jesus, and then we're we're growing right. It's not only cognitive, is it? It's an intimate knowledge. It's like um, uh, in Amos chapter three, verse two, God looks down at His people and He says, "You only have I known of the families of the earth." That's what God said when He looked down at His people. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous to respond to God and say, you mean you really have never known about Egypt? You don't know about the Canaanites? Of course not. It's not that kind of knowledge, is it? It's not, it's not talking about factual, like only factual cognitive knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge that we're to add to our faith. But let's look at the next. Um, next is self-control. What must be observed before anything else in looking at self-control is just realizing that it's a gift of who? It's a gift of the... Yeah, gift of the Spirit, right? Which ties right into our first point that only God's power, only His Spirit is going to bring about what we need to live out these virtues. It's a gift of the Spirit, and so the Spirit is absolutely necessary for self-control. So if the Holy Spirit is required to live out this godly kind of self-control, should we expect the world to have much self-control? The world who's devoid of the Spirit? No. Absolutely not. No. No, self, no self-restraint really should be expected. It's only by the common grace of God that any self-control is shown in the world. Uh, Dr. Gene uh, Green defines biblical self-control as the term that points uh, to the power of or dominion over oneself, especially with regard to consumption of food, the tongue, and sexual desire. Those are three big ones in the New Testament that we're called to have self-control over. It's this craving. Um, the word the word lust doesn't always refer to sexual sin. Sometimes lust just re- refers to this overall craving that the world can't curb. It doesn't have it doesn't have God's spirit to settle in and to curb those desires and to make them satisfied in their creator. So they over-desire other things other than God. And so 
Um, the role of Jesus as he subdues us by his grace, he gives us the contentment that we need to be self-controlled and not over-desire what the world offers. We can say, along with the Heidelberg Catechism, I think this is absolutely beautiful, that we can be patient in adversity, we can be thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will we can neither move nor be moved. We can live in that um, self-control because of everything Christ is for us. Next one, steadfastness. Steadfastness. We should have a believing steadfastness that marks us. As Dr. David Helm writes, uh, this is being loyal to what you have taken up. It's just a general definition. To be steadfast, to persevere, it's being loyal in what you've chosen to take up. And in our case, it's uh, being disciples of Christ to follow him, being loyal to that cause. Littered all through the New Testament, this term's actually been used 32 times in the New Testament. So we're called not to a physical marathon. Some of you might be interested in that. Hayden maybe runs a lot. He's calling us to a spiritual it assumes pushback. It assumes a lot of spiritual adversity from the spiritual forces of evil. It assumes that. And 32 times in the New Testament we're called a steadfastness. Remember the author of this letter? You remember near, uh, right before Jesus died, he denies him, right? Three times. Peter denies him three times. What kind of steadfastness would it require to be able to move past that? And in the power of the Spirit, um, trust the forgiving grace of God and to persevere and to endure. So Peter has experienced this for himself, right? He's experienced this for himself. Jesus' grace met him after his, his resurrection and told him, feed my sheep now. Just not even, not even a month after denying him three times, Jesus is like, remember, Peter, you're going to be one of the pillars of, of the faith, as we're told elsewhere. Proverbs 24, 16 says that for though the righteous one falls seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when, when calamity strikes. So even though we stumble and even though we have significant hindrances at seasons in our life, the righteous endures. They persevere. They will continue. God's grace is going to cause uh, life to triumph over the stench of death. Our next is godliness. We're supposed to add to our faith godliness. This virtue um, it indicates really an appropriate respect and reverence toward this one that we're knowing, Jesus. This is really referring to the kind of holy fear, reflecting holiness as we live out our Christian life. <clears throat> These virtues, as we're uh, walking them out in faith, it's never to be separate from this overall, all in a healthy fear of God. And so we're all to do it in, in godliness. Uh, two more, brotherly affection and love. This is going to close out our list right here. Brotherly affection. Look first at uh, how he describes this in 1 Peter. I think it's beautiful. 1 Peter uh, one twenty two. <clears throat> Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly 
love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice what he says comes first. Having purified your souls, it begins there, right? It begins there. If some of you are here this morning and you genuinely believe there's no way that I know Christ, this is why you can't love uh, people in your life. Uh, we need the forgiving grace. We need our souls purified before we have the capacity to love in the way you're created to love. And that's why it's so difficult. Uh, it feels like, in, like you're pushing a boulder uphill to try to love those nearest to you in your life. Having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. <clears throat> I would recommend an uh, article that Chad wrote in his path, uh, posted on um, the Gospel Coalition site. Um, the title of it may get us off guard at first. It's called, I'm a Southern Baptist and I love a man. That's the <laughs> name of it. But what, that's, what he's obviously drawing attention to is there is, there is a Christian brother that he has had a wonderful connection with throughout his life and that God has used um, for his glory. Just one little excerpt from from the article, <clears throat> Chad wrote, As I struggled through my first year as a pastor, this guy was there for me, there to cry with me, there to discuss difficult theological topics, there to pray for me, there to challenge, encourage, and love me. He, more than anyone besides my wife, understood and fully empathized with my deepest hurts. He cried with me and Mindy during our miscarriage. He hurt for our family. For all these things and for a future filled with more of this kind of love, joy, and Christian brotherhood, I must say, Lord, I thank you for this man that I love. And so what, how countercultural it would be for us to redeem this idea that we can love each other as brothers. That would be, such, that would be so attractive to the world. Because to them, you're either completely heterosexual or you swing the completely opposite way. And there's no category for loving the uh, people in your life who share the same gender as you. Listen uh, how in 1 Samuel 18, listen to how David speaks of Jonathan. David finished talking to Saul. After that, Jonathan became David's closest friend. He loved David as much as he loved himself. So Jonathan made a pledge of mutual loyalty with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. And by God's grace, if we could obey this passage, we will grow together in our mutual love. May We may stay removed from the cultural context of um, embracing each other with a kiss that we're encouraged to do in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Peter. We're all encouraged to greet each other. <laughs> I don't know, that's probably pretty shocking to Chad, right? He comes back and he's just like, what's going on? <laughs> but this is, this is the biblical basis. Brotherly love, we could even call it a, a, for men, a masculine kind of deep respect for each other and Christian love. This is the basis for that, cult, that cultural practice then, where they were encouraged to do that um, in the New Testament. Okay, last one is love. So let's wrap up on the list here. The last is love. Notice first that love is in a list not of emotions here. Love is listed um, with other virtues. So love is not most basically and not most fundamentally a 
emotion. It can certainly carry warm feelings with it, and I think most of the time it probably will. But love is not fundamentally an emotion. It's an act of the will, a commitment of the will to the true good of someone in your life. A commitment of your will. It's action. It's making regular choices in the favor of that person. Um, Just to kind of illustrate this out, one of my favorite professors in college, Dr. Johnson, he did a lot of marriage counseling, and he would it would be so common for couples to come to him and say, Look, we're both throwing our hands up, we can't be in the same room together, uh, we just don't like each other, and, we, and we've got to end this, and we're coming to you because we thought it's the right thing to do. And uh, he's like, well, um, sounds like you don't like each other, you don't like to be in the same room with each other, I, I would just recommend the first thing to do is just is love each other. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. We really don't like each other. We really can't be in the same room with each other. He's like, yeah, I heard that. So I'm just encouraging you to love the person you don't like right now. Like, that's, that's the big theological bomb I'm dropping on you. Love the person you don't currently like. And feelings of favor usually follow after that commitment. Uh, Jameson and, and Evelyn, uh, when, when they were born regularly getting up with them, regularly caring for them, regular, all this that me and Katie were choosing to do, choosing to care and choosing to be committed to them, um, what followed from those late nights was, guess what? We began to feel love for them. We didn't have to have uh, a reason from, from them. They didn't have to persuade us to love them. So we're, we're all be committed to each other, even the people that you don't particularly uh, like in that moment. It's okay to say that. It's okay to have personality conflict as long as you are committed. Jesus loved me when I was really unlovable and I'm going to love these other people in my life. I'm going to choose to do it. Alright, last part and then we'll close, the necessity of Christian virtue. Here, The main point of this part is that growth in Christian virtues is necessary evidence for all who enter the kingdom of God. And so just, just in closing, notice this. Um, once we see these uh, virtues in our life, we can make our calling and our election sure. In other words, for any of you who, like me, have doubted your personal salvation in your life, have doubted, Lord, am I really converted or not? Am I really authentically Christian? But Peter addresses that here. He says, you can make your calling and your election sure. You can be certain of it. You really can. God doesn't want you just to uh, wallow in doubt. doesn't want you just to walk around in a haze like, what's, what's going on? Do I, do I know the Lord or not? Um, notice he doesn't draw our attention to the intensity of our faith. He doesn't draw attention to a date that we wrote on the back of a card when we were 14. He asked a current question. He asked a present question. Are, do you see these, uh, these virtues? Is there, is there any resemblance of these virtues in your life? Uh, do you see any advancing or any progress in, in, in these virtues right here? Um, do, you, do you see it? And if so, then you can, you can feel certain that God's calling and his electing, his choosing of you has happened. Because the world devoid of the Spirit is not going to make progress in this list. They're, they're, they're not going to do it. This, this 
list cannot, we, that was our first point, this list cannot be um, demonstrated at all apart from the Holy Spirit. So first of all, for any of you who are struggling with that, uh, God wants you to be certain. In 1 John, he says, this is how you know that you have come to know him. All right, that you, that you love each other. And love is the last virtue and the most supreme virtue in the list. Um, also, what this list does is that it, it makes us fruitful. It makes us uh, effective. And last, if you look at verse, um, if you look at verse eleven, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. So this list will help us make our make certain of our salvation. It will keep us effective and fruitful, and it will lead us into the entrance of God's eternal kingdom. God's eternal kingdom. Well, in our, in our closing together, I want you to look at verse 5, and notice when he's talking about this list, he begins by saying, make every effort to supplement your faith with this thing, that thing, this thing, that thing. Make every effort. Someone else has translated it, has translated it uh, bring all your energy to bear on adding to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control. Bring all your energy to bear. And so, if we're, if we're to be obedient, if we're to be submissive to this text this morning, we have to begin to ask ourselves, and the people that you spend the most time with, maybe at work, maybe in your home, maybe here, maybe in, in your neighborhood, how, how do you plan to bring all your energy to bear on those relationships so that you begin to see uh, uh, virtue and honor? What, do they current? Here's the question: Do they currently look at you as an honorable person? Uh, that's that covers the virtue, the the very first in the list, virtue. Do they see you as being above reproach and, and as honorable? If not, how do you plan to specifically? bring to bear that out in that relationship at home or in the church or at work. Uh, think about uh, your um, think about your self-control and at home or in the workplace or here how would someone describe you as having self-control specifically in those worldly appetites that we looked at earlier. Would someone say that Spirit has reigned those desires in, or do they just kind of bust out of control all the time? In your speech, we don't have, we simply as Christians do not have the liberty to speak to each other however we want. We just don't. We don't have that liberty whatsoever. Uh, we can't just indulge in the, the appetites of, of the world because we found something that our soul craves even more, right? Right? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, he will not thirst or hunger anymore. He won't. It's difficult to grab after all that the world offers if you're already full. If you're already full of the fullness of God. You have a spirit and you are growing in your love and thank and gratitude that Christ has died for you. If we're full, we're not going to be going after all these different um, pastoral concern as I brought up earlier if any of you has a significant doubt whether or not you belong to God 
if you look at this list and you just say, no way, there, there's no way I see this in my life, I'm not advancing, I'm not advancing at that, Peter wants you to put a question mark over uh, whether or not you belong to Christ. It's a, it's a helpful question to ask. And I hope you come to me, I hope you come to um, Richie, come to David, Chad, Chad, uh, Ashby, um, returns, anyone, any, any spiritual leader in your life, if you go to them, and I hope you would, would talk about that. Um, literally, uh, our entrance into the, into the kingdom of God uh, determines on whether or not we have this necessary evidence of the Spirit. So, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the life of your word. God, you use this to shine a light for our feet. And God, for, for us who belong to you and God, who, who know you, God, I pray that you give us grace and, and forgiveness in the times when we uh, do not bear these out, God. We pray that you give us perseverance and steadfastness, uh, steadfastness and trust that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.